Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to open the word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. We, as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving, help us to be very thankful and, and think about you during this period of time as well, because that's what Thanksgiving is truly all about. And Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 12. And last, last time we were looking at Samuel delivering the people of Jabesh Gilead. And at the end of his life, we're going to find that they're going to return uh, the, the favor to him. If you remember that story, they, they're the one that rescues his bodies from the Philistines and takes them down from being desecrated. And, and, take, and they boldly go and re recover his body. And the reason being is because he showed him such great kindness at the beginning of his kingdom. So that's a place that we're going to remember as we go on. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said unto Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you have said unto me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Behold, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, and whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind my eyes therewith? And I will restore it unto you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, nor opposed us, oppressed us, neither have you taken aught of any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is, is witness this day, that you have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is our witness. All right, this is Samuel's farewell. He's no longer the leader of the people. He's been, there, he's been the judge. He's been the spiritual leader. He's been the, the physical leader up until this point. And remember, they asked for a king. And if you remember, his initial attitude was a little bit of anger. I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough for you. God's not good enough for you. And God said, no, give them what they've asked for. And so he comes before them and says, you know, listen to me now. You've got your king. And he goes, I want any of you, if any of you have any charge against me, step up now and speak. And he goes through this long, you know, this long list, you know, uh, have I taken anybody's donkeys or ox or possessions? Have I taken any bribes? If anybody has anything to say against me, say it now, is what he's telling them. And the people all say, no, you've been a righteous, honest person. You have not defrauded anybody. You've not oppressed anybody. Uh, and he says, okay, now you've said this in front of God and in front of the king. Don't come back later on and say... I've done some. Basically, he's clearing the table. You know, I've been your ruler. And it's kind of interesting that not a single person says, you know, this is the statement to his righteousness. Now, his sons went that way. <laughs> okay, remember, part of the problem is that his sons were going the way of Eli's sons. They weren't, they weren't being honest. They weren't defrauding me, which is why, if you note what he said, I'm standing here and my sons are with you. Okay, don't tell me what my sons have done against you. Tell me what I have done for you. Now, Eli's sons were, Samuel was taking care of Eli, right? Basically, he was taking care of Eli. He was being raised in the, in the, in the tabernacle because his mom promised that she would give back her son. But Eli's sons were called sons of Belial, sons, basically evil men following, following the devil. 
you know, is what it literally, literally means. Uh, and basically, he's, the people weren't real happy with Eli's sons. They were maybe not as, uh, excuse me, Samuel's sons. They weren't as bad as Eli's sons yet. But they were headed down the wrong path. They were not righteous. They were not godly. And the people were going, hey, we want a king. And you know, we're not really happy with the direction your sons are going. And again, I don't think his sons were as bad as Eli's sons were because it didn't seem to be that. But they weren't the righteous man that, that uh, Samuel was. And we found this in every one. If you remember, every one of the judges kept trying to put their children in place of them. And none of them... Can, were able to continue. It was always the people went into sin and, and followed, followed uh, fell away and then called on God you know, in the next generation. So we have this, this pattern that goes on. And now they're wanting a king. Now what's going to happen to the king? The king's going to want his son rule. Okay, and that's the way the king's supposed to be. The king rules, his, his, his son rules. There's been a problem with every leader. They started out good. The leader started out good, but their children usually did not follow. And you'll see this pattern complete itself through the period of the kings. Every time there was a good king, his son was evil. For some reason, these guys just couldn't train their kids up to follow them. Uh, and it's been a problem frequently through the scriptures that these sons didn't seem to be as righteous as their father and head down the wrong path. And in history, we see the same thing in most cases. We see a, a grandfather who's a very godly man who does a semi-good job with their sons and their daughters. They may or may not be good, usually okay. And then their grandchildren, you know, by the third or fourth generation, that righteousness has fallen away from the family in many cases. Now, there are exceptions in history. You look at somebody like the Adams, you know, John and Quincy Adams, and their mother raised a very godly children, and, and there's a whole long line for many generations of godly people that came out of that family, and there were generations before them that were godly. Okay, there are exceptions to the rule, but usually in history we look at and say, here's a very righteous man. We see that in some churches where a pastor grooms their son to, to take over after them and the son just doesn't do as good a job as the father did. And by the time you get to the grandchild, it's you know, going to somebody else. It's not uncommon. Again, you can, it does go the other way every once in a while. But pretty much historically, because we are sinners, we tend to go downward. Very rarely do we go upward in the flow. It does happen. There's sometimes when you get it because we've got to remember a relationship with God is a personal relationship. The, the comment is God has no grandchildren. Okay, he only has children. All right, now we try as parents to raise our kids to follow God, but it really has to be their decision to follow him. And unfortunately, oftentimes it's not a, it doesn't work out. And it's a sad thing for parents. They look and say, well, I gave you the example. I, you know, I lived as, as, as good as I could before you. Why aren't you making it real? And in some cases, it's because the kids know us. <laughs> they know our faults. And, if we're, and the ones that get to have the second generation be powerful with God are the ones that will admit you know, their faults and say, you know, hey, I messed up. You know, I'm not, I wasn't that great person. I wasn't trying to pretend to be something, you know, that I wasn't, because a lot of parents won't 
admit to their children that they have made mistakes. You know, that they're sinners just like their children and have the same problems their children have. And the children know that we are. And if we're trying to make everybody think and, and look at us as if we don't, then they're going, well, they're just being a hypocrite and I don't want this. And this is very important for our people to see that, you know, we're real. We're trying to live godly. We're trying to be good. We're trying to do, live the way he wants us to do. But we are sinners and we know that we're sinners and we, and we confess our sins and repent. And our kids know it better than anybody else in our family because they get to see exactly who we are. And I've shared with you, I worked with kids most of my life. 30, 40 years I've worked with kids and I've had many children of pastors trying to tell me about their parents and I go, no, I don't want to hear about it. Okay, I know that they're a sinner. I don't need you to try to help me know how bad they are. You need to be able to forgive them and live your life before God. And this is where we have to be with everybody is that they stand and fall before God. And you know, I say that statement a lot of, to everybody. People stand or fall before God in their own life. And I'm not their judge. We're not anybody's judge. God is their judge. What they do is stands before them and God. And when we start trying to judge each other, we get into all kinds of trouble. Because number one, we don't know what's going on in that person's life. And I've used this as an example. You know, we see somebody who's smoking and we get all bent out of shape that they're smoking and try to tell them that they're not, that you shouldn't be smoking, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be drinking, the things we see. And what we don't see is that every, every Friday night they're going down to pick up a prostitute. That prostitute is probably going to get them killed a lot faster than their smoking would. And yet I see the smoking and I get really bent out of shape about the smoking and God's worried about something that's going to hurt them in a much deeper way. You know, maybe not a prostitute. They're, they're, out, they're out using really hard drugs. And I'm worried about what I see them running around town with. So we need to be careful in our judgment of other people. You know, we can be concerned. We can pray for somebody. And if God really leads us, we can comment you know, and lovingly as when we've been praying for them. You know, I'm really concerned about this aspect that I'm seeing in you and do it lovingly. And make sure that you've been invited into their life. I mean, nothing's worse than to have somebody come in and try to tell you that you, know, that you don't even hardly know, that doesn't have anything, you know, okay, well, I come to church, I saw you doing that. And, <laughs> you know, it, you know you're, I'm not, you're not my judge and I don't care what you think. The one I care about is when I stand in front of Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, or, well, you're here by grace. And I wanna hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so my life is going to get improved each year as I let him take over my life, but it's so that in the long run, I want to hear, well done. And here is Samuel saying, you know, hey, if any of you got anything against me, now's the time to speak up. Don't wait. And then he goes, now you, you, you've, you've said that I haven't taken anything. You've said it before God. And the king is here. You've said it. He calls him God's anointed, which means the king. <laughs> okay, when he says God's anointed, he's referring to the king. Uh, the king is here. You've admitted that, I, that you have nothing against me in front of God and in front of the king. And basically he's saying, don't come back later and say that, you know, that you have something against me because this was your opportunity to share it. All right. Verse 6. And Samuel said unto the people, is not the Lord that advanced, is it, 
It, let's try to read this all over again. Verse 6, And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord in, of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob was coming to Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. All right. One of the great things we see is the prophets always brought up the history of the Israelites. That was their constant thing. Okay. He goes, when Jacob went to Egypt, all right, does anybody remember how many people went to Egypt when Jacob went there? How, how big the nation was? Does anybody remember? I know it's a small piece of trivia that probably nobody remembers. 70 people. The entire nation of Israel numbered 70 people when they went into Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, they grow. And this was a little closer. Does anybody remember how big they were when they came out of Egypt, approximately? Three and a half million, roughly. They had 660 some thousand fighting men, men of fighting age, there were some older and some younger. Most of those would have been married, which would have brought you to about a million and a half plus the, the older and younger, and probably had a child or two each. So you're looking at a minimum of about three million people that came out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt. You know, maybe as many as five, five million. So they had grown greatly during the time that they were in Egypt. And so he says, you went into Egypt and you, you cried out to God and he raised up Aaron and Moses. You know, Aaron and Moses were brought up by God. And remember, he doesn't go into this, but remember there was a day when Korah came up with a bunch of other people and said, you know, Moses, you're, you're, being, you're, you're elevating yourself too much. Any of us could be the ruler of this people and Moses, if you remember, Moses fell on his face and God says, okay, let's, let's, let's see who, who I choose. Aaron and Moses, you stand over here. People, you stand over here. Korah and all of your people, you stand over here. And if you remember, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and closed back up. And God said, okay, any, any other, basically saying, any, anybody else want to complain about my choice? Uh, Miriam opposed Moses at one point. Now, she's, the older, she's older than he is. He's a, she's the older sister. Aaron's older than he is. Aaron doesn't seem to have as much problem. But at one point, Miriam and Aaron decide to come against Moses, and Miriam is struck with leprosy. And again, Moses falls flat on his face and begs for God to heal her, and they stay there until she's healed. So God says, I have, ris I have risen up your leader. And this is the thing for all of us to understand. Whoever is leading the country that we live in, God brought that leader into power. Now, in America, we have this idea, well, we voted them. Well, God still made the right people get into office. Sometimes we don't like the people who get into office. But, you know, our job is still to pray for them and to honor those, those people because God has put them in place. It may be because of the sin of the people that we get a bad leader. It could be that you know, all the stuff that's going on, and God says, okay, you're getting the reward for your actions. And we get the government we deserve. You know, not every single person is bad and deserves it, but as a nation, we get the government the nation deserves. And 
we as Christians need to call out to God and pray and ask for his blessing and try to see God change what's going on in our country. Because that's the only way is a revival in his, in, in his people that leads to a revival amongst the towns, which then would release, you know, be, lead to a revival in the, in, the, in the states, which then would release, you know, go to a revival in the country. And if we could revive our country, maybe we could revive the world. Okay. To me, one of the saddest things is the United States used to send out more missionaries than any other country, and now we receive more missionaries than any other country, coming to evangelize the Christian America, where there's, a, where there's a church on every corner, but most of the churches aren't following God. And so we get more, more missionaries to this country now than we send out. And that's sad for a country that has the roots that we have. You know, most people, even if they're not a Christian in our country, have Bibles in their house. Now, they may not ever read their Bible. They may not ever touch their Bible. But they have Bibles in almost every house. It's been said that the Bible is the best-selling book that's never read. And it really is. It's still the best-selling book. And there's still lots of people who don't read it, including many Christians who don't read it the way they should. Yep, and if, it, and if they do get a Bible, they will carefully cut it up into pieces so that everybody gets a small piece of that Bible. If they get a Bible in many of these countries where there's 10 people in the church, they'll cut the Bible into 10 pieces, and each, per, each person will get one-tenth of the Bible so that when they come back the next time, they'll, they'll you know, pass the Bible around and get another piece of the Bible. Yeah. And we in America have so many Bibles that we don't care about as a, as, a, as a nation. And it's a really sad thing. And I can't tell you how many Christians I have met over the years that have maybe, maybe read the Gospels all the way through. And then maybe have read the New Testament. But I can tell you there's not a whole lot of Christians that have read the entire Bible. You know, I've been, I've been going to church for 48 years and I can tell you that I have never ever on a Sunday morning, excuse me, one time, had any messages on the minor prophets outside of Jonah. I don't think on a Sunday morning I've ever heard anybody teach on Obadiah or Nahum or Zechariah or Zephaniah or Micah. Beautiful books that get totally left out. Now, you might get them on a Monday, Wednesday or, 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 or a Sunday night, and even that has been rare. You know, over 48 years, maybe five times I've heard messages on the, the minor prophets in the church. It's important because it is something that is not covered very often. And you, know, you read those and so many prophecies about Jesus in those books, so many prophets, prophecies about the end days are in those books. And the average Christian goes, well, you know, it's too, too much trouble to read that one chapter book. Can't find it. <laughs> okay, well, Maybe you just need to read all of them then. <laughs> you know, it taking only about two weeks to read all of the minor prophets. But you know, we look at this and say, where are we with God? You know, are we really seeking after him? Is he real in our life? If he's real in our life, he'll be real in the lives of those around us because they'll say something real. They'll see that when we fail, we repent, we turn to God and he forgives. And that's what people want. They don't want to see perfect people. Because if they see a perfect person, they go, I can't be that person. But when they see a Christian who fails, 
who repents before God and confesses that they've made a mistake and that God has forgiven them, that's what people are looking for anyway. And that impresses them. Wow, there is something about your God. You don't have to be perfect to be with your, in, in, his, in his presence. And that stands out to people. So he's saying, you know, God raised up Aaron and Moses and now stand still that I will reason with you with the Lord and all of the righteousness. He goes, when Jacob was come out in verse 8 of Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord raised up Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So he skips the 40 years of wandering and says, and you dwelled in, in, in the promised land. Okay. He didn't even go through the conquering of the promised land. He goes, God, God took you out of Egypt, put you here. We'll just skip 40 years, <laughs> or 50 years but during the conquest. And when they had forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into bondage into, into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazar, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the Moabites, and they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served Baalim and Ashtoreth. Now deliver us out of your hand and your, of our enemies, and we will serve you. All right, so he goes, you sinned. You fell away from God. You served the, the Baal, or Baalim, the, the female version, and Ashtoreth, and you repented. He goes, but you keep forgetting God. You kept forgetting God. He's now going to cover the book of, of Judges really quick. And he's not even going to name all the judges. Okay? He's just named three different groups that have conquered them. And he's got a point in what he's trying to do in this. So we're going to look at his point that he's going to make when he gets get to this end. Verse 11. The Lord sent Jerubbabel and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel to deliver you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you dwelled safely. Okay, does anybody remember who Jerubbabel is? It's another name for Gideon. Okay, so that's Gideon. Badam is, uh, is another name that, uh, for, uh, Beth, uh, that was the one that fought against uh, Sisera with Deborah. So Barak is that's another name for Barak. And Jethoth, which was Gideon's son that was raised up. And then he brought up Samuel. So he left off a whole bunch. He left off uh, Samson. He left off a number of these guys and said, God raised you up leaders and delivered you. Okay, now he's coming to his point on this. Verse 12, and when you saw Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, come against you, who remembers who Nahash was? This one should remember because we only talked about him a couple weeks ago. Nahash is their current enemy. Okay, he's the king of Ammon who's their current enemy. Yeah. All right. And uh, that Saul just beat. All right. So he says, and when Nahash, when you saw Nahash, king of the children of Ammon, come against you, you said unto me, Nay, but the king shall reign over us when God, when the Lord your God was your king. Okay. So he's saying, all these times God has delivered you. And he goes, Sisera. And remember, Sisera had all those chariots that shouldn't have been able to be defeated. And Gideon defeated, you know, or excuse me, uh, Deborah and, and Barak wiped them out. 
and he was he was killed as he ran ran away and, and hid in a tent. And the, remember, he's the one that the woman drove the tent stake through his through his temple and said, "Oh, the man you're looking for is in my tent." Yeah. You know, just you know, dead or dead, but he's in the tent. He's staked. Yeah, he's been staked. <laughs> he's staking out the tent. <laughs> uh, and then he goes, "Sisera is is dead." He goes, "All these people have been defeated, and yet you came to me." when Nahash came and said, no, you're not good enough. God's not good enough. And he's, he's, bringing, he's being very critical to them. God has always been faithful. This is the accusation that we have for so many people with Christians who start distrusting God. Where in our life has God been unfaithful to deliver and help us when we've called upon him? Now, when we get into sin and everything, God will let us have the consequences of our sins. And we can say, well, see, God, you were unfaithful. No, he wasn't unfaithful. We were unfaithful, just as the children of Israel were unfaithful. And yet I have heard many people say, well, because God didn't deliver me out of the trouble that I caused for myself, I don't trust him anymore. And the question is, well, have you repented from your sin? Have you asked God for his help? Oh, no, he just didn't. He let bad things happen to me. I don't trust him anymore. Well, you did bad things. There's a consequence for your sin. Okay? And these are why he's given these examples. You guys forgot God. You went, into, you went into trials, and God delivered you. But he says, here you have this trial, and now you're rejecting me as your judge, and you're rejecting God as your king and your deliverer. And you asked for a king. He's making the people really understand the severity of what they've done. God, I don't trust you. Yeah. I was listening to one of the pastors today, and he was talking on this very topic, actually. And he was talking about how when God says that he wants a tithe, and people go, no, God, I can't afford to tithe. God has promised to provide all of our, all of our needs. So when I tell him, no, God, I can't afford to do what you tell me to do, then I'm telling him, no, I don't trust you. God, I don't trust you to do whatever it might be. And I hear it in so many different variations. I just can't get victory over this sin. Uh, you don't trust God enough to give you the victory, to crucify your flesh and give you the victory over that sin, to give you deliverance. It's amazing how easy it is for all of us, and I have the same problem myself in many areas, to not trust God fully. In the Truth Project, uh, Dale Tackett talked about, you know, people will talk about the omnipresence of God and how they believe that God is omnipresent. And then they'll say something like, well, you know, if uh, my wife or my mother or my dad were here, I wouldn't do this. Okay, the people are more important, the, the opinion of some person is more important to you than the fact that God is with you seeing everything you do. So in practice, we don't really believe the omnipresence of God. God, I believe that you're all powerful, but you can't take care of this problem. I don't really believe in his all powerfulness. You know, and this is why God puts us through these tests all the time. He'll put us in a place where he says, do you believe that I can deliver you? And it's a time for us to step out in faith and say, yes, God, I do believe that you can take care of this situation. 
Unfortunately, so often we fail and say, well, no, God, I gotta somehow manage to take care of this myself. I can't see you, I don't know how you could possibly make this happen, so I've gotta deal with it myself. And we fall flat on our face and get our nose bloodied and we go, God, you let me down. Uh, no, you didn't, you didn't stand faithful and want, want to, what I wanted. You wanted to do it in your own strength and I let you get a, try to do it in your own strength. Same thing that parents will do, a good parent will do with their kid. You know, the kid wants to go off and do something as long as it's not going to kill them. Yeah. You know, okay, you really want to do the wrong thing. I can't necessarily stop you and you need to learn. And we let them fall flat on their face, and especially while we're there to pick them up and, you know, dust them off and, and love them and, you know, bring them back. There's many times, especially, you know, when they get to be the teenage years and they start to get that independent streak, that sometimes we just have to let them do something that's not going to be good for them. You know, again, that doesn't mean go out and do something that's really going to be bad, but you know, we try to stop that. But you know, they just make some bad decisions. We let them make the bad decisions and have some consequences. And uh, sometimes those consequences are long-term. I've had some of those with my kids. You know, that some of those consequences were long-term consequences. Most of them weren't. But you know, here's what he's saying. There's, <laughs> You decided not to trust God. Here's your history. God was faithful every time. And then you came along and said, no, you're not enough. God's not enough. Verse 12, uh, excuse me, 13. Now, therefore, behold, the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired, and behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against his commandment, the commandments of the Lord, then shall both you and also the king that reigns over you to continue to follow, follow the Lord. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. All right, so he says, okay, you've got your king. All right, you've got a different ruler now. Same process. You've got to obey, and by the way, now your king has to obey. Because it's not a righteous man that God's raising up. Now, some of those judges weren't so righteous, but, you know, but in most of the cases, they were somebody that God says, here's your leader. They're listening to me. He goes, all right, so now you've got your king. Now it's both you and your king have to be righteous. If you obey, all the blessings. Same thing Moses said. Remember when Moses told the people, you're going into the promised lands. If you obey God, you will be blessed. If you disobey God, all the curses of the law will fall upon you. Same word to us as Christians. We obey God, the blessings follow. We disobey God, and life gets miserable <laughs> until we decide to repent. And this is... It's been true all the way through scripture. God has a statement for us. Here's your situation. Are you going to obey? Are you going to trust? And we see it all through the scriptures. God gives us examples of people who obeyed and trusted, and we get examples of people who disobeyed, mostly Israel. <laughs> we see Daniel being taken into Nebuchadnezzar's palace and saying, Okay, here's all the food. It's been offered to the idols. It's, you know, and he says, no, I can't eat that food. And he actually puts a challenge. You know, just let us have our, our vegetables and water and see if we don't do better than, than all these guys you know, 
you know, that we'll be in better shape than the rest of these guys. And God honored it. Now, you know there's no way that they got fatter and healthier <laughs> just on vegetables than these guys that were eating all the pastries and everything. Now, they may have been healthier, <laughs> but they weren't necessarily bigger. And yet it said they were just as big or bigger and, and healthier looking than these guys. And I believe the healthier part was easy. They were eating good food. Then we go back and we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bow before an idol. Quite a challenge. Now, all they had to do is even pretend to bow. They didn't have to actually worship it. They could have just looked like they were. Would have destroyed their testimony. Would have, would have destroyed God's testimony. But they stood out like a, you know, a very strong you know, tower standing up in the middle of the field with all these people on their face on the ground and they're standing. Doesn't matter how tall they were, they stood out. And they told Nebuchadnezzar that our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not bow before your idol. And God delivered them. They expected to die. They expected to die in that flame. They didn't expect to. They knew God could, but they didn't really expect to come back out of it. And yet God delivered them. This is something that we need to be. We look at a situation and say, God, I don't see any way that this can be good. I don't understand how anything about this can be good. And God says, do you trust me? Now, he may not say that in a voice, but basically that's what he's saying. And every time we look at a situation, he's saying, are you going to trust me and my word? Or are you going to walk in your own sight? Walk by faith or walk by sight? Well, God, I just don't see how any of this could be good. I don't see how I can get out of this. I've, I've got to do. Okay? And in the first century, we have stories of thousands and thousands of Christians who died not willing to make the sacrifice to Caesar. All they had to do is drop a couple grains of, of uh, wheat into the flame and say that Caesar is Lord, and they would live. Thousands did not. Thousands did because they didn't, they failed that test. Their testimony was shot for a while because they were not willing to stand up for God. You know, did it ruin them did it, from going to heaven? No, because salvation is by grace. But they failed a test. And there would have been consequences for that test. They probably would not have been trusted by many of the other Christians any, after, for a while after that. You didn't have enough courage to stand up for God. And there would have been consequences for it. And every time we fail the test, there's consequences. And a lot of people live in a long series of negative consequences because they keep making bad decisions, not accepting God's word. And keep making them. And sometimes we live way below where we should be living because we look and say, God, I just don't trust that you're going to bless me. Or... It might even be, God, I'm kind of happy where I'm at. It's better than where I used to be, so I'm really happy where I'm at, and I'm not going to take any more, I'm not going to take these other, stand, you know, these other things you're putting in front of me that might bless me. Because it might take away what I've got. You know, you've got to let go, let go of the one before you can take the other. Uh, the people that would do the rings over things, you know, or the trapeze, you have to let go of the first one before you can ever get to the other one. And oftentimes, God's holding that out. I've got this blessing out here for you. You know, just let go. But God, you know, if I, if, I don't, if I lose this, I'll be back where I used to be. And God says, do you trust me? 
Do you trust me to give you a better blessing by reaching out? And it's hard. Sometimes it is very hard because when we look at it by sight, it looks terrible. It looks like a terrible, awful thing to do. I almost didn't take the job at the prison because I just didn't want to do that type of work again, you know, working outside the church again. And yet it's been a blessing to have done so. But I came really close to not doing it because I was enjoying where I was at. You know, God was providing my needs. All the bills were getting paid. You know, it was stressful at some time wondering when the bill was going to get paid, but God paid the bills. And it was a fun way to live in many ways. And then God holds out this carrot, and I'm looking at him going, I don't know. You know because by sight, it really looked good. But on the other side of me, I'm going, no, that means I can't do my Bible studies during the daytime and all these other things, and you know, prayed about it and decided, okay, it's, let's, let's go for it. And it's turned out to be a very good decision in the long run. Now, would I go back if God offered it again the other way? Yeah, I'd go back to living by faith. It was, I liked watching God do things. It was fun. But there's also that time when God says, okay, now it's time to reach out and take this. And this is something we say, in the church, there's two extreme camps. There's a camp that says if you're not rich and, rich and healthy, then you're doing something wrong. And that one's just as bad as the group that says, if you have any wealth and any prosperity, you're, you're, you're going against God. You have to be broke and poor. Neither side makes you righteous. Neither side is good or bad in and of itself. If God opens a door and you have a chance to honor him with wealth, honor him with wealth. If, he's, if you're broke and he says, this is where I want you for this season, be as faithful as you can within that site and watch how God provides. If he wants you somewhere in the center, take it. There's no inherent righteousness in either wealth or poverty. And we want to be careful of that because there's two schools that basically say, well, if you're wealthy, you're, you know, there's a school that says if you're wealthy, you're doing well. And there's another school that says if you're wealthy, you're, you must be a terrible sinner, not dependent on God. Okay, and the same thing on the other end. You know, if you're broke, you're you're terrible, awful. You know, not depending on God. You know, not trusting God to provide for you, or I'm totally dependent on God. And you know, so neither side is good or bad. We need to look and say, and this is the hardest thing about walking by faith. It's we make decisions and say, I just don't know whether this is right or right, right or wrong. Sometimes. All we can do is pray about it and say, okay, God, I think this is where you want me to go. I'm stepping out. And as long as you've prayed about it and, you, and you're seriously trying to honor God in it, then it's up to him to get the reward. He might shut the doors. Nope, that wasn't what I wanted you. You've been praying about it. I'm going to shut the doors. Or it'll be better than anything we could have ever imagined when we step through it. But we oftentimes get caught up in the status quo. Well, God, I'm just, I'm very comfortable where I'm at. I don't want to grow anymore, God. I don't want to do anymore. I'm just happy where I'm at. God doesn't want us in the status quo for long. He may let us have a season, okay? All right, I'm happy where I'm at. And God says, okay, now it's time to take you to the next step. Uh, God, I kind of like what I'm doing. I don't want to go to the next step. And God says, well, we're going to take you to the next step, whatever that step might be. He wants us growing. He wants us moving forward in trust in him. And that's the key part of this, trusting in him. 
And usually you kind of know everything about you saying, okay, I think God really wants me to do this. No, I don't want to do it. You've got people advising you that you should be doing it left and right. You've know, got good Christian counsel saying, I really think you should be doing this. I really think you should be doing this. You know, no, I'm really happy where I'm at, God. I don't, you know, uh, you, you've been providing for me. The problem is if we stay where God doesn't want us, he will pull the blessings away from us and we will not, be, we will not have the comfort that we had at that spot. God, I'm really comfortable. I like it here. And God says, no, I want you over here. You know, I'm the shepherd. I'm leading you to the next field that has better food and better water than the one you're in because this one's drying up. Okay? But God, I really like this, this, uh, this field for the last five years. <laughs> it's been really good. I've been really happy here. And God says, well, this one's drying up. The water's gone. The grass is turning brown. We're going over here to this field. You can decide to follow me or starve to death. And eventually, we'll follow him. <laughs> we will follow him eventually. It might be a little behind the scene, be, you know, a little too late, missed, missing some of it. Because eventually we'll get tired where we're at. Because what we saw by sight didn't see around the corner. The corner where the blessing truly was, and we stayed behind and said, okay, God, I want this one. He says, well, this one's gone. He never feeds us with old food. This is why it says his mercies are new every morning. I can't go and say, well, God, this is what you did yesterday, so I'm just going to live in yesterday. God says, well, I'm not in yesterday. I'm here in today. Get, get, get here in, in today. today. Well, God, I can, see if, uh, I can see tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be really good. And God says, well, we're not living in tomorrow either. We're living in today. And this is what makes me so sad sometimes when I look at people and they're living either completely in the past, in total regrets for everything they're doing, or they're living for that future day when everything's going to be good. And they totally miss today. You know, God, I just, I've really screwed up so bad. I don't, I don't know how you could love me. I don't know how you could use me. So I'm so full of regrets that I can't do anything today. And I walk past everything he wants me to do today. Or, God, I just can't wait till I, until you give me my blessings and I have a nice home and, and there's plenty of food on the table and there's, you know, I've been able to lead all these people to the Lord and, oh, was that somebody I was supposed to talk to? <laughs> oh, there was another person. Thank God, I'm only looking for the day that I can really lead these people to you. Uh, you know, as we walk past everybody we're supposed to talk to and minister to because we're looking for the day. The day when everything's going to be good. And here is... Samuel saying, you wanted a king, you rejected God, you know, follow God and you'll be blessed. And verse 16, now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the harvest today, the wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord and he shall send thunder and rain and you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Now, we as non-farmers read this and say, what's the big deal of a bad storm? Okay, if you're a farmer, especially a wheat farmer, 
you have to have so many days before you harvest the wheat without rain. It's got to get to a certain dry status. The wheat is going to go bad and get a mildew if you harvest it. When you gather the stalks, they can spontaneously combust if you tighten them up and they're wet. Okay, this is a major deal to have rain when they're supposed to be harvesting their crop, which means now they're going to have to wait another period of time for the harvest for the wheat to dry out. And during the wheat harvest, it doesn't rain, usually. Okay, so this is a big deal. And he's saying, like, you know, most people never realize that Samuel calls a storm out. You know, they read over this and don't think about this, but he calls up a storm from God. And thunder and rain, which means they can't harvest their wheat. And if it's late enough in the season, they may not harvest their wheat. Now, I don't think God judged them quite that bad for this, but he's like, here's, my, here's what you've done. They're seeing an economic failure at this point. It's possible they're not going to harvest their, their grain. And their response... And all the people said unto Samuel, pray for your servants unto the Lord God that we die not, for we have added unto all our sin this evil to ask for a king. And Samuel said unto them, fear not, you have done all this wickedness, and, and yet turn aside from following the Lord, turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your hearts. Turn you not aside then, should you go after in vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. The people come to their senses all of a sudden. It's a little too late. They've got their king. They're going to have the consequence of having a king. And remember, Samuel, a couple chapters back, quoted Deuteronomy when Moses said, and when it comes that you ask for a king, Moses already knew that they were going to ask for a king because God told them they were going to ask for a king. And he said, this is the manner of the king. The king is going to take 10%. He's going to take the best of the people. He's going to take the best of the land. He's going to, and he goes right down this long list, basically saying the king is going to take God's place. Okay, Everything that belonged to God, the king was going to take, which now means somebody gets second best and it probably ends up being God because the king is going to demand the best. So there's already a problem. You've now placed God in second place because of the sin of asking for a king. The king gets top billing. He gets his taxes first, just like our government. They get their taxes first before God gets his, gets his part. And he says, this is what's going to happen. The people repent. They say, pray. We don't want to die. All of a sudden, they realize their, their sin. Okay. We did not trust God to deliver us. We wanted it done our way. Sad thing is, so many of us as Christians want to do things our way. God, I just don't know how your way is going to work, so I'm going to do it my way. God, I don't know how you can accept sinners into heaven by just by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, so we're going to try to work our way into heaven. And you know whether we believe it or not, we or most people are practical, uh, working Christians trying to earn their way into heaven. They don't trust God well enough to say, "God, it's all you." 
And again, that doesn't mean that the good works are bad. When God comes into me, he is going to change me. And I'm going to do good works. But the reason I'm doing good works is not to please God, not even to look good in front of other people. It's just because God is changing me and I want to be more like him and I do good works. So the good works are the result of my relationship with God, not to get a relationship with God. You know, how many times do we see somebody in a dating relationship? You know, they don't get to know the person really well. You see this picture of somebody, this, this ideal that they're putting out in front of you, but you don't really get to know them. Uh, you know, it's, it's been said that you don't really get to know the person until the first day after the honeymoon and you actually get to see that person in the morning before they've had a chance to, to put on who they want to present themselves to be. We as Christians do that a lot to the, when we come to church. Well, how's everything? Oh, everything's just perfect. I've had no problems all week long. Couldn't pay my bills this week. Couldn't, you know, almost lost my job. You know, the car broke down, but everything is perfect. Now, you could say that and mean it. If you really understand God is working all things together for good, you might literally mean everything is good. But most Christians aren't saying that when they say everything was perfect. They're just going to tell you, well, I'm super Christian. Nothing bothers me. And that's something we've got to be aware of. You know, there are times when we're going to be bothered. There's going to be times when we have a hard day. Hopefully we have more good days than bad days. And if we're looking at God, we should have good days. But, you know, we all have bad days. There's just days when nothing seems to go right. It always seems to me that my trials are so much less than other people's. Why should I even love I tend to think that way myself. God is in control. All things work together for good. And I don't usually have really bad days. Because a lot of it is your attitude toward what's going on. If you have a bad attitude, it doesn't. The best things in the world could be happening to you if you have a bad attitude and you're going to look at, you're going to see the, you're going to be Eeyore, you're going to see the dark cloud around the sun. Okay, not a cloud in the sky, but it's going to rain. I know it's going to rain. You know, well, they all give me these nice things. I wonder when they're going to all want it back. There are many people that live like an Eeyore. Everything's going good. Everything's perfect, but it's all going to turn around in any moment now. Our attitude really is a crucial part. If I fully trust in God, my attitude toward anything that happens is God's in control. And when I truly trust that God is in control, I should be having good days more than bad. Because I'm looking, I say, okay, God, don't see it, but you've promised it's going to be good. God, you're in control. doesn't mean that it's not going to affect me sometimes. There's days when I look around and go, well, it's not the best day in the world, but, you know, God, you, you've promised it's going to be good, so I'm, I'm going to rely on your, your truthfulness. You know, and, but our, my honesty is that sometimes, some days just aren't good <laughs> by my understanding of them. When I'm walking with God, I know that all things are for good, and I can actually walk in great victory. And that's when that smile comes on your face more often than not. That's when you're, when you're confident and you're going, okay, don't know what's going on, but God, you've got a, you've got a reason. Yeah. I've got several guys that I know that, that, are, that tell me they're Christians, and you know, they are so down and so depressed, I'm going, you need to, you need to really start to trust God. You know, God is good all the time. Yeah, I know that. Well, 
put a smile on your face, you know, and, and know that God's got a plan for you. Yeah, I know he does. But man, things are just miserable right now. Well, quit looking in the future. Live today. God has a plan for you today. Not tomorrow. Not in heaven. He's got a plan for you today. He knows what he's doing. And this is, what is our attitude? What is my trust level with God? Am I trusting him or am I saying that I'm trusting him? And usually you can tell the difference. It doesn't take you long to be around somebody to know whether they're truly trusting God or just saying they trust God. And that doesn't mean you're never going to have a bad day. <laughs> okay? We're human. Now, theoretically, no, we should never have a bad day. But because we are human, we're going to look at the days, bad things that happen to us and say, wow, this is just a miserable day. And forget that God has a plan for us and that he has a good plan for us, and that nothing happens that's outside of his plan. But we're human, and sometimes we just get bothered by what, we, what we're facing. And we look at this, and it says, God will not forsake his people, in verse 22, for his namesake. God gives us grace for his namesake. Even when we don't deserve it, if we're his child and he's claimed us as his child, which he has if we've asked him to come into our heart and truly mean it, he does good for us for his name's sake. Remember when, when Moses' argument, and, and I've said, you know, I kind of thought, saw God and Moses having quite an interesting, interesting uh, uh, play on each other. You know, God would keep telling, when people were doing bad things, God would call and say, well, they're your people, Moses. And Moses said, oh, no, they're your people. You know, there was almost this game going on between them. But remember the time when, when God was so upset with the people, he says, I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to start all over. And Moses says, no, you can't do that, because if you do that, then your name suffers. You took them out, and you're, it will be reported that because you weren't strong enough, you couldn't deliver the people if you wiped them out. God does much for us for his name's sake. Even when we totally have messed up, we have, we have messed up so bad that we deserve to be killed, and God says, for my name's sake, you're one of my children, and you're somewhat trying to follow me, <laughs> I'm going to give you the blessings that I promised. Not because you deserve it, but because my name. I want my name to be lifted up. And that's what Samuel says, because God chose you. You've sinned. You don't deserve it. But for his name's sake, he's going to bless you. He's going to keep you. He's not going to destroy you. Why? Because he has a plan for you, Israel. You don't know what that plan is. But some 4,000, 3,000, let's see. We're about... Uh, 1,000, you know, 3,000 years from now, God's got a great plan for you. 1,000 years from now, the Messiah is going to be born by you. 3,000 years from now, the Messiah is going to return and, and take you back and make you his people. He's got a plan for you, Israel. You don't know what it is, but because of his name's sake, he's not going to destroy you. And he's always kept a remnant of Israel together. Ever since they became a nation, he's made them, left them with a remnant. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart and consider how great things he hath done for you. 
But if you shall do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king. Okay? Follow God. Follow God is his recommendation. Okay? But if you're determined to do evil, God will judge you. And in Samuel's mind, I'm sure he's thinking about the judges where God put them under captivity but didn't destroy them. In their mind, they may be thinking literal destruction. And they weren't taken out as a kingdom until 600 years later when God took them out as a nation 400, 600 years later when they had sinned so bad that God put them into captivity. The northern kingdom into Assyria and then the southern kingdom into Babylon. And he kept them in Babylon for 70 years. Okay? And that was a great privilege because that was even prophesied to them. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Does anybody remember? We've talked about this. Why did they go into captivity for 70 years? They didn't, they didn't keep the seven-year Sabbath of the land for 490 years. And God says, you owe me 70 years for the land to be kept still. So you didn't want to do it? I'm taking you out of the land for 70 years so it can have its Sabbath. And then he sent them back. Consequences. You didn't do, because they're looking at, well, God, you know, I can't, I can't let my land sit idle for, for, for a full year. And God says, well, I doubled your harvest the first year, the seventh year, so that you could let, you know, the sixth year, so you could let your land sit for a year. And they would consume that doubled harvest on themselves, and they didn't let the land rest. And God says, fine, your consequence is you're going into captivity along with the consequences of following Baal and Manasseroth and, and every other god that was in the area. But he says, you didn't even follow the basic command that I gave you. Let your land sit for, for a year. And, and this is what he says, do wickedly and God will consume you. He'll take away your blessings. If we want to do wrong, the consequences will come. And this is why I say over and over, sin has consequence. And it has more consequence than we think that, than we're expecting when we do it. Because we always think, you know, we can, well, God, you know, I can, I'll, I'll handle it. I can, I can deal with what I think the consequences are going to be. And God says, you don't even know what the consequences are going to be. They're going to be worse than you imagined. And God said, do good. Do good and get rewarded. Do evil and get the reward for their evil. Or, you know, we use consequences, you know, and like I said, consequences can be good or bad. We always think of them as being bad. We think of rewards as good and consequences as being bad. But both of them can be good, negative, uh, good or negative both ways. I mean, if you do wrong, your reward is that you get punished. Now, we don't like to think of it as a reward, but it really is. We earned that punishment. For the wages of sin is death. You know, we go out and we sin, and God says, well, you've earned something, and I'm going to pay it. Death. Whether it's physical death, spiritual death, or just a temporary feeling like we're dead in the spiritual realm. When we sin, there's a consequence that leads to a darkening of the light, a darkening of our life, and toward death. And the consequence. When we're following God, more and more life. And this is why it's so much fun when we get into the Word, we get into studying, and we spend time with His people, and we spend a, a relationship with God, and more and more light comes into us. More and more trust comes into us. As we see God doing these things, 
It should build our trust. And this is what Samuel's argument was. You had all these examples. You guys sinned, you repented, and God delivered. This most recent time, you said you didn't want the same deliverance that God was always doing for you. You wanted a king. You wanted to be like the rest of the world. Congratulations, now you're there. Now deal with all the problems of having a king. And we need to be looking to trust him and say, God, I just want to trust what you say. Which is why it's so important to get into his word. We need to know what God says. We need to know how God thinks. Because we can't make a godly decision without knowing what he thinks, how he acts, what he tells us to do. If we're not in here, in his word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We cannot live by faith if we do not spend time in the book getting to know the God that, we want, that we're saying we're having faith in. Now, the book itself is not going to give us anything. Jesus told the Pharisees, you seek the scriptures, for therein you think there is life. What was he saying? The very words themselves are not life. Because I am the life. You come into the word and seek me. Seek the relationship with me. Learn how I think. Learn how I behave. And therein is life. Jesus is the word. We need to get to know him. If we just read the words, we'll get a lot of condemnation. We'll get a lot of rules. We'll be hard on people, just as the Pharisees were hard on people. Then God says, no, I'm the life. I love people. Yeah, I even love you, crazy person reading the Bible. You know, I love you enough to, to take you into a new life. All of this comes down to where is our faith? Am I going to believe his word? Am I going to trust his word? Am I going to step out in his word? When I talk about stepping out of faith and people saying, well, I've got to let go of this and let, you know, to reach out to the other, make sure it's within God's way. You know, this goes down to when I would, would talk to people and they go, well, you know, I really think God's leading me to get married to this person. Are they a Christian? Well, I don't think so. All right, I don't care how strong your faith is. No. God says don't be unequally yoked. You cannot go against his word and say I'm walking by faith because that's not walking by faith. That's walking by sight. Well, I really like this person. I think, I think I could get them changed. No, they'll probably change you. you know, if it goes contrary to God's word, it's not God. Very, very clear and simple. If it is contrary to what he says in his word, then you're not being led by God to do something. You might be led by emotions. You might be led by your sight and trying to justify it. But if it goes against his word, it's not God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not going to take you into some very scary things and very scary steps. You know, my last thing, you know, my, you know one of my favorite stories about George Mueller is when he's praying for breakfast and there's no breakfast for the kids. What a statement of faith that is. Okay, kids, we're going to thank God for the food that we don't have. I'm sure he didn't say don't have to the kids, but, you know, we're going to pray for the food. You know, and gets the food as he's praying. How much faith did that take? You know, by sight, he should have just said, okay, kids, we don't have anything. Go, go back to your rooms and pray for, pray for some food. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have some for lunch. But he was so confident in the power of God to provide, that he says, we're just going to thank God for the food. 
And I can almost see all the people, no, no, George, you really didn't understand. There's no food. You can't be thanking God for the food. There's nothing in the, there's nothing in the kitchen. And he's going, no, we're going to pray and thank God for the food. Where is our faith when everything looks dark? When we say, God, you've promised to provide. You've promised to do. And we're looking at, don't know how he's going to do it, but God, you've said, and I've said so much, you know, God is always on time. When I was living by faith, he never gave me the money ahead of time. It was always like the day before it was due to be, to go out, or at least early enough to get into the bank and clear the bank. It was always on time. Why? Because if he'd given it to me early, I would go, oh, look, look how lucky I am, or look how, look, look, everything is right there, and I would have forgotten that it was God, or could have forgotten that it was God that provided. And you know, this is what I keep saying. We've always got to keep our face looking to God. When we're standing in the middle of blessings, we need to look to God and realize that we're being blessed. Because if we stop looking at God and thinking that somehow we're doing it or sometimes we deserve it, God might just turn off the blessings and say, let me show you what you deserve. Here, let's live in your deserved for a while (laughs) instead of the blessings. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you that you care for us and you provide. Lord, help us always to remember the history of what you've done for us and what you've done for others. And let us always stand in the faith that you will continually be in our provider in all that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.